My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. is that there is a massive amount of violent displacement of people who are unhoused, people who are not able to afford the cost of living here. And the way that the city and that the Vancouver Police Department and the RCMP have chosen to deal with a growing population of people who can't afford to be here is to use criminalization as the tool of the day. That's the voice of Tonye Aganaba. They and Chantelle Spicer are today's guests on Talking Radical Radio. This show brings you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people who are involved in many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening can strengthen all of our efforts to change the world. Aganaba and Spicer live in the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people in what is colonially known as Vancouver. They speak today about their involvement in the Defund 604 network. As most listeners will no doubt recall, the murder of George Floyd by police in Minneapolis in May 2020 sparked an uprising against anti-black racism and police violence that swept across North America and around the world. While not the first such uprising on this continent even in just the last decade, the momentum that it generated under the banner of defund the police changed mainstream conversations about policing in an unprecedented way. Now, while that upsurge of highly visible mobilizations has long since ebbed, as is inevitable with that kind of spontaneous uprising, and some of the mainstream space that it opened has been recouped by defenders of the status quo, It would be a serious mistake to underestimate the currents of grassroots police and prison abolitionist work catalyzed and amplified by that uprising that are very much ongoing. The Defund 604 network got its start during last year's uprising. A few well-known community organizers in Vancouver reached out through their networks to bring together people they knew to be committed to, as Spicer put it, quote, abolitionist work and transformative futures, end quote, to seize this new moment by working collectively in new ways. Vancouver is one of the most expensive cities in the world to live, and people there face ongoing mass criminalization and violent displacement by police, particularly people who are drug users, unhoused, poor, indigenous, or some combination. The work of the Defund 604 network has gone in a few directions. A key part of that has, of course, been organizing to defund the Vancouver Police Department. This year, that has looked like a substantial and sustained grassroots intervention into the city's budget process, an intervention the network is calling the People's Budget. From May until September, the network focused on engaging particularly with people and communities most impacted by police violence and most marginalized from the official city budget processes around their needs, demands, and already existing visions for a safer and more just community. More recently, they have begun putting pressure on City Hall around those demands. However, Abolitionist politics are not only, and in fact not even primarily, about making demands on the state. While abolition certainly does aim to tear down all of those ruling institutions that cause so much indignity and harm, prominently including police and prisons, it aims to do so in significant part by building alternative institutions that reduce harms, meet needs, defend communities, and facilitate thriving. 
So even in the engagement around the city budget, the primary focus is not just on reducing how much money goes to the cops, but on how best to support the things that marginalized communities are already doing to keep themselves safe, and have already imagined as part of their better futures. Notably, this does not mean just shunting money into mainstream social services, which themselves often cause harm to marginalized communities. While it can be frustrating to have to deal with hostile governments, governments that really don't care about the harms that police do, or about what communities really need to be safe and healthy, today's guests argue that the key is to remember that building abolitionist futures happens not primarily through convincing politicians of this or that, but through care work, creation, experimentation, mobilization, and organizing with each other in our communities. I speak with Aganaba and Spicer about the abolitionist organizing of the Defund 604 network. My name is Chantelle Spicer. I use she or they families of pronouns. I have been living here in Vancouver, which is the unceded territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people, for about 10 years doing work in ways that tries to align with and support with Indigenous sovereignties for the host nations whose territory I'm just so blessed to live on. I myself have Mi'kmaq ancestry from Nova Scotia and also Jewish Moroccan and Austrian. I'm actually pretty new to abolitionist politics under that definition, but I've been doing land rights work, work on consent that has to do with sexualized violence and land rights and the connection between land and bodies for the last 12 years or so. My name is Tanya Aganaba. I use the pronouns they and them. Like my comrade Chantel, I am also based on the unceded ancestral territories of the Musqueam, the Skohomish, and the Tsleil-Waututh First Nations. I was born in England. My family hails back to what is colonially known today as Zimbabwe and Nigeria. But when we peel back all the layers and think about the ongoing effects of colonization and imperialism, my roots actually spread way further than that. Nigeria, Zimbabwe, Malawi, South Africa, Mozambique. And I ended up in so-called Canada at the age of 13. Being here as an immigrant, I have a unique perspective, which helps me to make sense of what it means to be on these lands and what it means to be fighting that common enemy that we have, which is white supremacy, racial capitalism, imperialism, resource extraction. And it's all of those things that actually bring me into this work of abolition. I'm also a musician and an interdisciplinary artist, but I find the most of my joy organizing with the Defund Network, with Battered Women Support Services, and also with Ethos Lab. The Defund 604 Network is an abolitionist organizing collective made up of a whole host of incredible human beings from different walks of life. We all came together during the global rebellion, during the violence that is still ongoing and being perpetrated against Indigenous people in so-called Canada. And also, we came around and coalesced around the desire to defund, dismantle, abolish, and decarcerate. What are some of the ways that the oppressive character of policing, the racist character of policing, has shown up in the Vancouver context in recent years? Vancouver is one of the most expensive places in the world to live. It's considered a very desirable and attractive place to be if you have money. 
But the downside of that is that there is a massive amount of violent displacement of people who are unhoused, people who are not able to afford the cost of living here. We're seeing a mass exodus of people from this community. And the way that the city and that the Vancouver Police Department and the RCMP have chosen to deal with a growing population of people who can't afford to be here is to use criminalization as the tool of the day. One of the things that the Defund 604 network came together around was a decriminalizing poverty motion that was put forward last year by one of our few allies on council, Jean Swanson. And the whole premise of that was it is not a crime to be poor. But unfortunately, in Vancouver, that is the track that we've taken. If you are a person that is living under the poverty line, if you're a person that is unhoused, if you are a person that uses drugs, if you're a person that is disabled or mad, you are at a higher risk of criminalization. Now, that's something that is true wherever you go, but there is definitely a heightened sense of that in Vancouver due to the fact that it's just so expensive to be here. It's almost like they don't want certain people to live here, and that's not fair. Vancouver is the third largest urban Indigenous population in all of Canada. And about 31% of Indigenous people who live in Vancouver live in Vancouver's downtown east side. The downtown east side is the poorest postal code in all of Canada. So in the downtown east side, we have a lot of Indigenous peoples from across the country and across the world who are facing incredible police brutality and surveillance on lands that are stolen. I think one really interesting context about Vancouver, though, is the fact that Vancouver was host for the 2010 Olympic Games, which really did shift how policing occurred in Vancouver. The security budget for the Vancouver Olympics was one of the largest security-based budget lines in the entire country ever. And it really did change for a lot of communities what policing meant and looked like. How people were experiencing policing like really amped up, and it has not ever really shifted from that. And before we dive into the specifics of the Defund 604 network, talk a bit in general terms about what abolitionist politics are. For me, abolitionist politics are politics that look at how we build better futures that start right now. So what are the actions that we can take in our immediate lives? that can be building blocks for transformed futures. That can be and should be really expansive. So looking at you know, mutual aid networks, looking at various ways that we care for our communities, for building relationships with our neighbors. There are lots of practices that are a part of abolition that can happen in the right now that eventually lead to the futures that I think most people really want right now, which are futures, you know, free from children being in cages, futures that are free from people who have the responsibility to steward lands and waters being arrested for enacting that responsibility, you know, different futures that don't involve people losing their lives to the prison industrial complex. To me, abolitionist politics are all about care and relationship, which is why to me they're just so incredibly expansive. Ruth Wilson Gilmore says that abolition is about presence, not absence. 
It's about building life-affirming institutions. So there's a lot of people who think about abolition and they're like, oh, that's so destructive. You just want to get rid of all the police and get rid of the military. And I'm like, yes, yes, I do want to get rid of the police and I do want to get rid of the military. But that doesn't mean that I want to leave a vacuum where they used to be. What it means is that the things that we've been using up until this point, violence, harm, sexual violence, all of these different tools that have been used by the hegemonic ruling system that we're living under, we want to remove those, but we want to make sure that we have the services, the programs, the institutions, the networks, the communities that will operate and act in the way that we want them to act. There's another quote by Ruth Wilson Gilmore, where she says, abolition means not just the closing of prisons, but the presence instead of vital systems of support that many communities lack. When I think about quote unquote crime, I'm using air quotes, but you can't see me. I see crime as the result of lack. If a person has the things that they need, food, shelter, community, access to health care, mental health supports, safe supply, all of these different things, the likelihood of them getting to a point where they need to commit crime is much less. And if you think about the role that the police typically play in those kind of interactions where it's like there's a lack in the community, they tend to make those situations worse. We know that the cops are not out here handing out safe supply or connecting people with houses or resources or whatnot. So our focus as abolitionists is on building those institutions. It's not just about destruction, although there's a little bit of that sprinkled in there too. How did the Defund 604 network come to be? After the murder of George Floyd in the May of 2020, I was reached out to by a well-known member of the Vancouver community saying like, hey, as a community of folks who are dedicated to abolitionist work and transformative futures, we need to get together and do some work to address policing in Vancouver. This is a really ripe time for it. This is when the meeting is. And we need you to show up ready to be committed to doing this work collectively. Then that person gathered all of us together, was an incredible host, had us meet everybody, and then just stepped back and said, I can't wait to see what everybody does with this. So the Defund Network was really an excellent gift of some key organizers in Vancouver who had the foresight to reach out to some really bright and caring folks in the community to meet one another and be able to do this work collectively. From the outset of my membership within the Defund 604 network, the first thing that we jumped straight into was relationship building. We did a lot of reaching out to other communities, finding out what kind of work they were doing, what kind of organizing they were doing around the police. We got to quick work putting together opportunities for public education through art, through virtual gatherings. We put together some teach-ins to talk about the so-called Canadian and Vancouver context of policing and what it means to be organizing in our context. Because one of the biggest and most annoying pieces of feedback that we would receive from, say, city councillors or from the police themselves is that, oh, you're importing news from the United States and using that as the jumping off point for your organizing. And that's absolutely not true. We have our own issues to talk about. We have our own white supremacy and racism deeply embedded in our own policing system. So our main focus from the get was about coming together and providing opportunities to share information, to provide public education for our community, as well as to motivate and mobilize people to get involved in really specific campaigns. 
So there were a few things that came up at the beginning of our existence. So we had budget cycle in 2020. So we brought together the community to talk about alternatives to policing. We came together to show up en masse to City Hall and speak about the decriminalizing poverty motion, as well as other motions that were being brought forward by city councillors as a response to, you know, the global conversation that was going on about the state of policing. That work continues. It's still happening today. Our desire is to use art, creativity, music, poetry, as well as virtual gatherings. And now as we move through to this next part of the pandemic, more and more we're starting to gather in person. I understand that one big focus for the group's energy this year has been what you're calling the people's budget. What has that involved? With the people's budget, we worked through the spring of 2021 to create a survey and outreach process with the goal of reaching the folks who are the most impacted by policing and the most marginalized from city budgeting processes due to you know white supremacy and lack of access to technology and also a lot of poverty stigma and addiction stigma with the goal in mind to hear from folks who had real lived experience with policing, but also were already enacting the things that they as communities knew that they needed instead of policing. The communities were already doing and creating and that we needed to support through defunding the police and then investing that money into nourishing, sustaining communities. The survey was launched after a lot of consultations with communities on May 1st on Workers' Day. And what we had asked folks to do was to show up to this launch with their dreams about the communities and city that they needed to live in. So that survey ran from May 1st until September 30th. We heard from 761 citizens of Vancouver, which we recognize is not the huge number of like 10,000 people who the city of Vancouver hears from when they run similar surveys. But like I said, we really focused on hearing from folks whose voices really need to be heard in these processes. We're just starting to release the information that was shared in the surveys now. What was shared has led to the creation of six demands that we're calling on the city of Vancouver to include in the 2022 budget, which include having an actually meaningful and accountable participatory budgeting system, recognizing that something like the People's Budget Survey and surveys generally are just one piece in a vast toolkit of ways that the community can be more involved and engaged in city politics. So yeah, just really want everyone to stay tuned for the work that's coming out of that because we're really hoping to highlight the power of peer-led communities and support systems. That was a really big part of the feedback that we heard from folks when we were doing consultation in even developing the survey that when we're asking questions and making demands, we really need to make sure that we're not just asking for money. You know, there's actually a million dollars a day that goes into services and resources in the downtown east side that really don't have an impact on the systemic violence and oppression that people in the downtown east side are facing. So it's not actually an issue of money. It's an issue of empowering people and building relationships in community that can make these like big first steps towards police-free worlds. I asked Chantelle and Tonier about specific examples of the kinds of things that communities were already doing and imagining to keep themselves safe. 
They talked about, for instance, the way that the Vancouver area network of drug users, or Vandu, was mounting counter patrols when the Vancouver Police Department and city workers were sweeping homeless people off the streets, and about the long-standing goal among sex workers of peer-led, indoor, safer spaces for them to work as examples of things that need to be nurtured and supported by community resources. I next asked them about what it was like to be doing this radical community engagement and bringing the resulting radical ideas to the city administration. It's very frustrating. I was sitting in a meeting the other day with a friend, Vince Tao, who is over at Bandu. He's the community organizer there. And he was reminding us all that this is actually about community defense. And whenever I am faced with the understanding and the realization that, you know, City Hall is not going to like this, I remember that, like, although City Hall is the one that has to rubber stamp the ideas, it's the people that we have to get on board. I don't believe in electoral politics. I believe that it's really difficult to make change in that arena. So when I am reminded about the fact that our interests, our desires, our dreams are actually counter to that of City Hall, to the provincial government, to the federal government, that actually takes a little bit of pressure off in a way and reminds me that there are way more people, just regular people, than there are city councillors. So it's a reminder to just focus our energy on the people rather than councillors. We definitely have to butt up against different kinds of institutions who are really just committed to upholding the status quo. You have to decouple making change from the institutions that need to make change, from like government is the change maker. It really is the people who are the change makers. I mean, as the conversations that we've had with community have shown, we're already doing this. We're doing it without city council and the mayor. We're doing it without the province of British Columbia. I mean, support, like real meaningful support from those bodies would obviously greatly increase the capacity to grow our movements in bigger ways and for people to like have more resources available, but we don't actually need them. Presenting these demands and working with the city is kind of like this obligatory thing that we have to do as part of our due diligence. But really, this movement is centered on how do we build relationships with our community? How do we provide education and opportunities to grow from our movement? How do we reach out to folks who want to know more about abolition and what transformative justice means and how we support our communities in meaningful ways? And that is really the purpose of the Defund Network. Talk more about the role of arts and creativity and music in the work of the Defund 604 Network and why you see it as so important. There's a quote that I love by Tony Cade Bambera, who says, the role of the artist is to make the revolution irresistible. I love that quote because it so beautifully sums up what our role is at this time. If you are somebody who can cook, if you are somebody who can look after children, if you are an artist, if you are a singer, if you are a writer, there is a way for you to use those creative gifts and talents in service to the movement. And I think that especially when we're talking about climate, it gets really dire. We don't want to hear about the police doing murders all the time. We don't want to be constantly barraged with data that shows us how their violence is going unaccounted for and how accountability is just not a thing that we can access under the system that we have right now. And there are really beautiful ways to bomb that tragic news 
and art and song, music, dance plays a huge role in healing, especially for the folks who are on the front lines. I think it's beautiful to be able to gift them music, art, creativity, opportunities to do craft together, to create together, because it's a really hard life to live out here. <laughs> music, art, and creativity have to be a part of the movement. They provide a beautiful way for us to transmit far and wide crucial information. One of the concrete ways that we as a network have been incorporating art and creativity, music, poetry into our work is that we are including these creatives in the offerings that we provide. I'm thinking back to the teach-ins that we did. Not everybody has the ability or the desire to write policy. We have to let people into the movement to share through their own mediums how they want to see the world change and evolve and the ways that their creativity can supplant police power and aggression. And of course, most importantly, whenever we're sharing information with the public, we always try to collaborate with artists to make it compelling. We're constantly trying to create shareable, beautiful, compelling graphics video, and text that people will connect with. Like Tanya had said, our daily experiences are often just living triage, just making it through violence and harm every day. And by including the arts and focusing on education and, you know, lifting up the brilliance of communities who are already experimenting with and living transformative justice and relationship building, we allow people to have space beyond that triage moment to like have a touch point to be like, there are people who are already doing this, or this is a direction that we can move. We really need space for radical imagining, both as a movement and just as people. By centering education and art, we just provide that touchstone of radical hope and imagining. What's coming up for the Defund 604 Network, and how can people act in support? People can stay tuned to all of our social media accounts, which is Defund 604 Network. We'll be launching our campaign for citizens of Vancouver to respond to the Vancouver budget, which is coming up at the end of November. Um, so we'll be doing a lot of education campaigns and a letter writing campaign and all kinds of activities around what we need out of the 2022 city budget and defunding the VPD budget. If you go to our social media, you'll find our link tree, which has all of the campaigns that are active right now. Specifically, I want to highlight Justice for Jared, which is an ongoing campaign around the murder of Jared Lee Laundes on July 8th, 2021 in Campbell River. He was murdered by the Campbell River RCMP. And the Defund 604 Network is working in solidarity and in collaboration with his mother, Laura Holland, to get accountability. Jared was pinned in by multiple cop cars. He had a police dog sicked on him and then was shot multiple times in the Tim Hortons parking lot on a 15-year-old warrant, which is absolutely unforgivable, uncalled for. If you go to justiceforjared.org, you will find multiple ways to get involved in that campaign. You have been listening to my interview with Tonye Aganaba and Chantel Spicer of the Defund 604 Network. To learn more about the organization, search for Defund 604 Network on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube.
To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, iTunes, SoundCloud, and other platforms. I'm Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, published by Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.